Based on your experience, how does company realize that it's time to modernize their digital product design? But imagine that you have two ways of working. One way is funnel-based, and the other way is holistic. It's different in many ways. It's different in kind of like decision-making processes. Uh, it's different in accountability. Often it's different in considerations that you need to have. So like the risk of making a change that breaks everything. Hello guys, uh, today uh, we see in our studio me and I'm Andre Samber, the CEO of LinkUp Studio. And today in our studio we have Natalia, uh, 10 years experience, uh, 10 years experience UI, UI UX designer and head of the design in LinkUp Studio. And a great guide with us, uh, please meet Avi Ashkenazi. So uh, the great opportunity, Avi is a product designer who has created digital products for Samsung, uh, led the design team for fintech platform Evoca, and is currently working as the UX designer at the number one e-commerce platform for the business Shopify. And as you may already understood, a uh, dozen of experience in this virtual room. And today we will try to get the most exciting moment of uh, professional life of Avi out of his mind, out of his brain. And we'll hope everyone will enjoy. So hello, Avi. Nice to see you here. Yeah, hello. Hey, nice to see you. Yeah. Okay, good. So uh, let me, you know, let me get straight to the point. So uh, tell us in general about your career. So career. So you are here and you have you have a great story. When we prepared, we searched your LinkedIn, searched the project you worked before. Like how how that began and have you accomplished to be in the place where you are? So I first of all thank you so much for having me on the podcast um, and videocast. Um, yeah. I started my career um, probably as a musician. Um, mm -hmm. I did a lot of music and I started doing like designs to support the music that I was working on, mm -hmm. either to produce covers or music videos, etc. This is kind of how it all started. When I finished my uh, BA degree, um, I decided that it's not enough and I want to go and do a master's. At that point of time, I looked at a variety of schools in Europe. Um, and I remember going to my head of department and tell, and I told him, oh, I got accepted to TU Delft and I got accepted to CIID and ZHDK and Goldsmiths. And he was like, okay, one of them is in London. The other ones are across Europe. Do you know anyone famous from uh, Zurich? And I was like, no. Do you know anyone famous from uh, Delft? I was like, no. Do you know anyone famous from London? I was like, yeah. It's like, boom. <laughs> there you go. So uh, fast forward 11 years of being here in London, whilst I was uh, inside uh, kind of the master's degree, uh, we had an event, Pachacucha, where we were pitching our skills. And one of the teachers saw that and was like, oh, I know a company that could really use uh, your skills. And at that point, I partnered with a company called Stromatolite, which was an agency uh, that did like really interesting uh, European Union supported festivals and uh, music and technology projects and installations. I've been working there for a bit. Uh, from there, I moved and worked for Deutsche Telekom on variety of media products, their biggest news website, different kind of uh, German copycats of American startups like Dropbox and Calendar and, and Gmail, mm -hmm. but the, the German secure uh, version of that. 
From there, I moved to Samsung, where I worked in a hybrid role between industrial design and interaction design, and I led a small team that built televisions and audio systems and IoT devices. And then I started my own startup in the hospitality industry, helping restaurants seat people efficiently inside restaurants. Um, we were able to sell a small piece of that company um, at the end of uh, 2018, where I moved to Iwoka, which was at the scale-up stage. It was 150 people, grew to 350 people uh, within the course of a year. Set up the whole design slash product function over there uh, together with the CPO and hired huge amounts of people and restructured to make it as efficient as possible. Created the disciplines of product designs and research and marketing design inside Iwoka. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end, I was kind of functioning also as a hybrid role between design and, and product. And then Shopify. Uh, I'm quite new to Shopify, uh, four and a half months in, uh, but really, really loving it, really enjoying it. Wonderful people, huge amount of designers there, so lots of people to learn from. Even though the role is design, you can deal with product as well. So you work usually in trifectas, and that means that you work with someone from tech, someone from product. Sometimes there's like someone from data involved as well. But the relationship is fluid, and depending on the skills and interests of specific people, we all lift the product together and build together. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I just will tell to our listeners that we definitely will call about the experience on the Shopify, but let's let's go start with it. Because, you know, people just, everyone know what it is and all of that. So, But that would not be interesting in case we're going to eat dessert, like, right from the beginning. <laughs> so, yeah, Natalia, go ahead. Yeah. Today we have the narrative that the main role of design is to broadcast and spread the value of a brand it has gained wide popularity. You had the opportunity to work with companies of different scales and different products. What do you personally define as the most important task of design for business? Specifically focusing on brand? Yeah, uh, like a, um, show value of brand. Across design. Through, through the design, yeah. Okay. Um, so I think you can, you can tackle it uh, in a variety of ways, but I think that the main criteria for a brand to be successful is trust. Customers need to know, or like your users, customers, they need to know and understand that you are who you are, who you say you are, and you have specific values, and you convey trust. So they will be able to kind of interact with you and put down their defenses and either convert on your website, understand what you're standing for, have the, the kind of the ability to read and digest the content that you're giving to them. Without the trust, people initially scheme very quickly. They're look, everyone's looking for a first impression and the first impression that they see makes a big difference. That is the thing that will eventually create trust. I love giving the metaphor of going into a room And, um, you know, usually where the light switch, you do like this with your hand to the place on the left side of the wall where usually the light switch is or on the right side of the wall where the light switch usually is. And if you don't find the light switch there, well, boom, the, this is a surprise. And suddenly you're like, okay, I don't know where I'm at. I have entered a different room. I'm in a different universe. What am I doing here? These are things that you kind of, that you want as a brand to avoid. You want to make sure that if you're, talking about yourself in a specific way, you talk consistently about yourself in that way, 
you want to make sure that you have specific patterns, everything looks and feels like it's a part of the same world. In the world, if you know, again, if I kind of uh, correlate it to a house, there is a shower and the shower behaves slightly different in the kitchen and slightly different to the bedroom. But some of the things, the positioning in terms of height of the light switches will always remain the same. I think like from, from everything that I just understood, uh, I believe that would be right to resume that uh, good branding is equal consistent, right? I mean, you, you, you use that word. I mean, it, it must be consistent. It must be consistent because this is how you're telling your story. And if you're telling multiple stories, then people will start thinking, oh, is this lie? Is this truth? Is this like, well, kind of intention and invested? Because your brand, you can't have your brand look like patches mm -hmm. of stuff. Again, again, with the metaphor of the house, like you go into a house and if every room looks different and like some rooms have carpet, some rooms have like wooden flooring, some ro rooms have concrete flooring and you don't understand really why you have specific floors in a specific place, you're left in an, in an awe, essentially. And that awe is a pause and the pause is uh, slipping and not converting and not really believing to the person who you talk to. Yeah, totally agree with you. Okay, so... Uh, The, the next question for you would be, you mentioned that uh, you work in Evoca for, with, the, with the scaling, uh, like through the scaling per period of, of the company. And uh, so question, like when, when it's time for you or as the business owner, and uh, I, I'm asking about the obviously product designer perspective, but how do you think when it's time to understand that you need to start scaling? You know, this is this is not going to work in this condition anymore. We need to expand. Like, wh what is the right moment for this, and how to understand that you are in that moment? Because everyone, I believe, that's obvious that in case you do it too early, you will fail because you don't have enough ma mass, you know, resources and so on. If you make it too late, you you again you're missing the point. So, uh, but how to find that point, in your opinion? It depends on what would you call scaling? You, you can scale in multiple ways, right? You can scale... Yeah, let, let's start from the definition what is scaling. Yeah, that's, that's the right direction. <laughs> you can say, I want to hire more people. You can say, I want to create more products. You can say, I want to double down and increase like the audience who is using my product because I think, feel that I've proven an MVP. Um, so I just want to kind of market it and get more people to onboard, and these are like different ways of scaling. The way a business is built really makes an, an, a difference and, and really makes an impact on the DNA. Usually when I, you know, if I interview with a company, I would kind of go and try to understand where the CEO kind of studied, what's the degree, what's their profession, are there like first time CEOs, have they had like any other work experience in other companies? All these parameters like, you know, impact, you know, how good they can manage, what would be kind of when things get stressful, what would be their default tool that they would address. People tend to kind of go to their past and tend to go to the, their safe place. And if someone, for example, is from finance, when shit gets hard, they will go and they will kind of open the spreadsheet and start doing that. If someone is, you know, from a product perspective or from a marketing perspective, when things will get tough, You'll know which people are get are going to get cut from the company. You'll know which lens uh, the CEO slash founders will look through. Mm -hmm. So it's always obviously from that perspective, it's always quite useful and powerful when you have like two founders or three 
who are from different disciplines and they can balance each other as well. Um, and then there's the other factor of like, you know, how, how were they when they got successful? So I can tell you, for example, at Iwoka when there was a pandemic and we had to shrink down a little bit and then later on we grew again. Um, at that point of time, again, like the founders kind of took their lands and they were like, okay, how did we make this business work from the get-go? Let's kind of scale down what we think is not essential and do what we did before that worked for us. Now, it doesn't always work. Um, sometimes it doesn't work, but usually uh, if the founders are extremely well uh, equipped and great at what they used to do, you can be successful in a business in, in multiple ways. You can be successful by like being super finance savvy. You can be by super design savvy and you can be by being like super tech led from that perspective. Going back to your question about like, when, when do I know that I need to scale? Um, after you kind of analyze that you saw, you saw some adoption, right? You saw that people enjoy your product, that you have something that is working. You can double down and start like growing and you can choose how to grow. You can, choose to kind of hire lots of salespeople and kind of go enterprise route and knock on doors. And in that world, like you'll have design supporting sales uh, from that perspective. For example, if you're like an API based company, let's say like Bulb, uh, sorry, like Bud. Um, or if you are like a more kind of retail or like fashion heavy or music heavy, then you would probably double down on marketing and product and designers and kind of try to create more value in subscription model, some sort of SaaS of a way, or you can um, go and just like go full on heavy marketing content, etc. And in that world, you're investing in content creation and you build like the army that you need in order to generate that stuff. So it's not, SEO so it's not like more about the point. It's about, you know, uh, like how you wanted to do it and then like, just make it's more important to make a decision how you're going to do it than when as far as i understood uh, from from your it depends what it depends what you want to achieve right it's not it's not really well it, the how is is kind of anchored around what you want to achieve do you want to bring more users do you want to attract different users do you want to build a new product mm -hmm. okay makes when sense. i was at iwoka like, mm -hmm. for example they really wanted to kind of expand their suite of products they wanted to serve small medium businesses in the best possible way and that's why there was like a heavily in, heavy investment in product and design because these are the people who can go and talk to users and understand what their needs are and how can they either tweak the product that exists or create new products just for our listeners iwoka is the comp for those who don't know maybe but uh, this is uh, this is the fintech product so, Correct. Yeah. Iwoka is a B2B lender, uh, Series D uh, company. I think last round was 2019. So probably we'll go and raise uh, sometime soon. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Following the previous one, uh, significant percentages of problem in software development uh, arise because the product owner or client or some decision maker didn't not take into account in uh, the process of the product for the future. Could you name uh, a few points to consider as the beginning uh, of product design if you plan to scale your product in the future? It, by the way, it's a really interesting question in the context that before you told that actually founders, you know, from their lenses supposed to decide 
you know, where's, where the product is going. And now I'm Tyler asking you about like, okay, but what we're doing in case you as the professional in a product design, uh, you know, you need to convince them to send them, you know, how to do it. Like how you deal with them? How you, how, yeah, how are you, you know, supposed to deal with bosses? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> generally, you know, that when I kind of mentioned like what founders kind of default to when things are hard, mm-hmm. um, usually they don't like, usually you don't like hire like crazy when things are hard. And usually um, you hire crazy when you want to scale, when you're placing essentially a bet. Um, and you have the answer in kind of the body of, the question, I believe that it's important when you're building a product to think about scalability. And scalability is constructed out of this thing works and we want to make sure that it works. So preventing churn, making sure people spend more time on the product slash that the product will be more useful for them. It's about optimization of all the paths in, in it and trying to kind of understand what is missing. It's about um, trying to one second, I lost myself. Sure, sure. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> what was I thinking? Yeah. Okay. So it's it's about like making sure that people come together and understand that there is like a specific mission and we're all going into a specific way. Like it, it's very easy, for example, as a manager to think about the people that work for you individually mm-hmm. and try to cater their kind of training plans and kind of growth just for themselves. But at the end, they all need to support the product and you need everyone running in the same direction, right? It could be that one person is going to run like this and one person is going to run straight and one person is going to jump all the way, but it needs to be towards like the same directions. And so when you kind of define training, it needs to kind of support that as well. And then finally, you need to make sure that as, when the company grows be, beyond like a, cer- a certain size, people start asking, oh, I, but I don't understand what the strategy is. Well, what is the strategy? Mm-hmm. Where are we going? <laughs> uh, I know what you're talking about because our company right now also in the scaling period and I completely agree with you and I may approve that this word is totally truth. <laughs> That's truth, yeah. Okay, so uh, like sounds, you very slightly led us to, to my next question that about it's actually about the leadership because what you're talking about is about the right leadership, right? As you told, everyone can... Uh, everyone can uh, make their work differently, but at least everyone needs to go to in, in one direction. Uh, and uh, I know that uh, you got experience in the you know leading the team, as you mentioned, hiring people. Uh, and I also know that you know managing design is different from managing designers. And I uh, I may assume that you, you manage not only the designers, so. What kind of the suggestion would be, you know, for those who wanted to be a leader or maybe they are right now or maybe some I don't know, life hacks about how to how to work with people, but as a leader? First of all, I believe in role modeling. Mm-hmm. You can't say stuff unless you know stuff. Generally, designers are art practitioners. Uh, they have a specific skills they hone on that skill and they improve it on a daily basis. And 
for them to value you, you need to be good at it as well. Now, there is a point of time where you stop designing physically. Uh, mm-hmm. You might design some stuff like at home for fun or you know, you know whatever whatever you do. But at the same time, you're probably not going to be like the best kind of Figma shortcut like Framer uh, prototyping to the cloud. And that's okay. But if you know about all those new things and you know how they can use that in order to kind of improve themselves and if you listen to them, because like when you work with people, like half the time they just want you to listen and value them and help them grow and give them feedback. If you listen to them, you will learn all that stuff. If you really care, you will hear what they're saying and you will learn about these improvements and you will cross correlate and you will do mixology between people. Some people work better with other people. Some projects require a person that is more like that and another person who is more like that. And this is your role. This is kind of where managing designers kind of change into managing design. There is a process that you believe uh, that should be followed. Usually the process is not linear and the process is messy. And it's also doesn't always include the same components, but Throughout the years, as a person who worked in that field, you know that there's a bunch of tools. Whereas a designer who just graduated has this like hammer and they just like want to hit with that hammer and whatever task that you're going to give to them, the first thing they will pick up very much like what I said about the founders, Mm -hmm. the first thing that they will pick up when things get hard or when they're like insecure or not sure what to do or when it's vague is that hammer. Um, And you are there to help them and, and kind of show them, hey, I have bunch of other ways, a bunch of other tools that you can try. And you, you're there to just help them kind of expand their repertoire and set of tools and also help them weight those things. So again, if we have like a specific process and project is, let's say two months, you create a pro you create a process for that project, which might in, entail, you know, competitor research, user research, uh, you know, user tr- like UX trends, mm-hmm. wireframes, mock-ups, testing, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have a shorter period of time, well, you might skip some of those things. And if you have a longer time, you might put more, or if the project is more kind of uh, front-end heavy or back-end heavy, you might emphasize specific aspects of that process. And you will help the designer pick up the tool that they need in order to actually do the work in the best possible way, based on your experience, which includes management experience, not just like IC experience, also management Mm -hmm. experience. So it's basically like about flexibility, you know, not, uh, you know, lots of people I know, they take in a book and they do directly to the book, and, but but you need to use your brain and understand where you can, you know, do change. something more heavily and, and not, yeah. And change process. <laughs> yeah, and change process in case you see that that will bring the value. Okay, clear, clear it's on that. About, it's about learning and knowing everything that you can and keeping the curiosity going and learning all these new things and trying new things. Mm but also knowing when is it safe to try, when do you need to de-risk. Yeah, yeah, because sometimes you may try, but it, it will be a disaster for a business, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree, I agree. I would like to jump to another topic uh, that's important part of the product design process, and I want to talk about product modernization. Based on your experience, how does company realize that it's time to modernize their digital product design? Get stuck. Usually, uh, you have two ways of working. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm uh, abstracting it. I'm making it like quite generic. But imagine that you have two ways of working. One way is funnel, 
based, and the other way is holistically. <clears throat> when you work funnel-based, you have different design teams across the funnel. Let's say, you know, the homepage, website, then what happens in the kind of engagement flow, and then inside the actual product retention, and then maybe some other team kind of functioning in support. And if you have multiple products, then, you know, this kind of cascades and goes, uh, kind of duplicates. The, the good stuff about that is that you can really squeeze down every conversion. You can really incrementally improve every step of the funnel. You can make everything perfect. But then suddenly you kind of take the macro view and you look at it and you see that one team completely changed the design system and did some things in order to, for, for that, for their part of the journey to work perfectly well. And they did manage to bring, I don't know, 20% more conversion, but what they essentially did was create a break in the design system. So this part looks like this, the other part looks a different way, and the third part looks a third way. Inconsistency erodes trust, what we talked about in kind of a mm-hmm. burn perspective. Um, the other way to work, and like, you know, th- th- that's the good stuff. The good stuff is that you can squeeze every juice of the funnel. The bad stuff is you create inconsistency, you create breaking points. After you work a little bit in that way, you can go and say, okay, let's think about this thing holistically. I have, I've identified this problem across this funnel. I want to solve it in all different touch bases. And then you have teams that are problem-based, not mm-hmm. process-based. And then they would say, I'm going to pick up a certain problem of the user and I'm going to tackle it in an email that we're sending, in the way support is talking to them, in the way kind of the homepage explained that thing, in the way that the product actually kind of showcased that. And in that world, you create consistency of copy, consistency of design. Everything starts like getting unified, but you're losing the, the, the tightness of the screws mm-hmm. of conversion. And you need to do both, right? It's just sometimes from a design perspective, you need to focus more on that one. And sometimes you need to focus more on the other one. Sometimes you need to focus on speed and sometimes you need to focus on quality. And it's okay to say for the next six months, we're going to focus on quality because otherwise, if you say, I just want, I want quality and I want speed, they can't happen. Yeah, we need to have a balance between. <laughs> yeah, there are three things, money, speed and quality. And like, you can choose only two, two maximum two of them. <laughs> yeah. uh, also, based on your experience, is a, a modernization in a big corporation with a few millions of users is it different when we have a small technology companies? Of course, it's different. Um, it's different in many ways. It's different in kind of like decision-making processes. Uh, it's different in accountability. Often it's different in considerations that you need to have. So like the risk of making a change that breaks everything. Um, it's because of that, it sometimes is different in pace. I think that Shopify is like amazing in, in even though like we're huge, we're, we have like incredible pace inside and we're able to ship things very, very quickly. Uh, but I've seen organizations that can't do that in that size. So in, in the context of modernization, uh, like before, because we prepare guys, right? We, I, I know that right now something that you are responsible for is the scalability in the sense of localization to the difference market in the Shopify. So, and, you know, interesting thing, because right now there are, you know, economical uh, crises in case you wanted to say, like at least everyone's scared about that in the world, right? So 
in well, not from perspective of uh, of any economical things, but more about perspective perspective of modernization and in the sense that you're doing this for the different. What what kind of challenges you're facing right now with that? I mean, with the scalability of the big product like Shopify. It's not even the product; it's the company because it consists from different products, right? Uh, but uh, like, what what challenges from the designer perspective because it's uh, like it's clear that that's not about you know drawing few designs in figma it it's more it's about the philosophy it's about the approach so what are you doing there how, how you get this problem solved i think one of the things that i can tell you like one of the best things about shopify is that as a designer you don't need to fight for your life or explain your values i've been in many places where it was you always had to kind of explain what's the value of design? Why is it important? What do you do? I think in Shopify, you have so many designers and it's such a culture of design inside the organization that you don't have that issue. And going back to kind of what I said before about founders, if the founders don't come from like a background that kind of appreciates or, you know, for example, the company was funded and they decided that they need design after just five years, you can see that as a culture, like we were able to make a company for five years, there was no design. And now we feel like we need design. We don't exactly know why we need design, but it, it is required. You have a lot of companies like that. And some of them, you know, get good design leaders and suddenly get to a point where they value it and some of them get less good design leaders and they just continue the the thinking that it's not working or like it has like limited amount of value in terms of kind of like how shopify works uh with kind of how the global uh, economic situation is is happening mm -hmm. we're keeping on building um there was a minor scale down, as you kind of saw in media, uh, but we are still here to help the merchants mm -hmm. build their stores, expand globally, and sell what they can online in the most simple, straightforward way that uh, that we can. And that includes kind of what my team is working on in localization, which my team is kind of more on scale merchants, that sell in a certain place and want to go and expand into another location. And as you can imagine, it's quite hard to do that. You need to figure out taxes, shipping, um, you know, translating your content, all these at support, all these aspects of like taking your product into a completely different country that often you don't even, you can't even speak the language of. Hmm. By the way, in, in case it's not a secret, what was the last country that you have worked with? Or, or maybe it's not finished and you can tell us. Maybe something last that you can tell. Let's, let's take it like this. The last one? That, that you can, then you can speak about that you used to work and on the localization for that country. So um, I can tell you that recently we've launched um, an improvement that allows to merchants mm -hmm. talk to their customers in the language. So before uh, merchants, if they wanted to email someone mm -hmm. in a specific country in a different language, the language, they wouldn't be able to do that. And that's something that uh, my team kind of launched recently. Mm -hmm. The ability for merchant to, or, or for customers to choose that they want to be spoken in a specific language and to automatically allow the merchant to have all their communications in that specific language 
to the customer. So if you're in Japan and you speak English, mm. but you're kind of like living with Google Translate, uh, you will be able to just get all, your, all the communication from the merchant in English if you tell them so. Okay, makes sense, makes sense. That, that, and that's really interesting. So, you know, it, it's some, it's it's like obvious function in, in a sense, but I understand that in case you have the product that large, um, it's not obvious. <laughs> it's actually not obvious <laughs> and not easy to do. Yeah. yeah because you can imagine that there's like many, many, many notifications that could come. It's like checkout and other notifications and marketing notifications. So kind of anchoring all those type of things and make it all work together is... Uh, is yeah, because you, you, you're making the slight change, but those slight... Those changes are leading to 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 dozens of small different changes, and and you can't miss anything because otherwise the whole system may may break. Yeah, I completely understand what you're talking about. Let's continue talking about Shopify, and uh, Shopify offers a good UX design framework uh, that uh, standardizes and will work for more customers perfectly. On the one hand, we talk about design as it transfers the value of the brand. And on the other hand, we ready make systems that can be simply copied and adjust through for thousand business and uh, around of the world. My question is, uh, what are the unique element of the product design system that cannot be included in standard framework? I think that generally, like some of the rules that you want to have in a design system is if 80% of the merchants and like, you know, the, so Shopify is, first of all, Shopify's design system, Polaris is quite famous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's well known and developers are using it. The merchants are using it. Shopify is using it. And it's, it's kind of out there um, as a beacon for many design systems. Very similar to, I would say, like probably like Material design and iOS guidelines and, and IBM's ones. Um, I think like you, what we're trying to do is follow the rule of like you know if eighty percent are using it eighty percent of the time, then this thing will make its way into the design system. And if it's like edge cases and specific things, because when you work on a specific product, you know what's best for your product. Yeah. Me as someone who kind of creates a product inside Shopify, I need to make sure that. I look at all the potential design systems, all the potential components. Can I use them to really do what my, what my what my product does in the best possible way? There are edge cases. There are scenarios where you start something that later on gets evolved or baked into an existing product or something that you need to be bespoke. But the general rule is like 80% of the time and maybe even like pushing towards like 90% of the time is to use that because it gives you the scalability, the speed that Shopify is well known for. And you can just like get things done way, way quicker. And in a, in a kind of very, very high level of quality because those components are tested and, and bulletproof against any potential scenario. And when we when you create something new, you're basically exposing yourself to potential edge cases that, or like testing that you didn't essentially sign up for. Like what you wanted was to get the best product possible mm-hmm. and you will, you might end up in a scenario where you need to kind of go and like check all those components and spend too much time on that. So if, you, if you're really doing something bespoke, it really needs to be worth it. Uh, okay, okay, cool. So... 
uh, I mean, pre-last pre question. So uh, we know that you are working with the methodology uh, like uh, Shape Up. You use, used to work, but the question, uh, like those who don't know, the Shape Up is the methodology that was invented by Bestcamp originally, as far as I know, right? And uh, I mean, you you can you can tell a few words about the methodology itself. But uh, my question is more about like Shopify is the huge organization. Uh, between it's very curious how how much team members you have inside your your team and how does it like how is it possible to to use that methodology uh, like what advantages it gives to you and and so on and so on okay so like a quick intro on the methodology and like just to say like in Shopify we're using like variety of methodology and you know it's a it's a special kind of secret sauce that the the company is kind of uh, keeping but Yes, we do uh, have some things that are very similar to um, ShapeUp with mm -hmm. adaptation, obviously, for Shopify. And I think, like, the main thing that is, like, quite useful inside ShapeUp is that you have these six-week cycles, um, which is very different to, like, regular Agile, where you go and, like, you do two weeks. Mm -hmm. When you do two weeks, it gives you flexibility. You have a mixture of, like, big rocks, small rocks, and you kind of dish out features. But the problem with that is with all the agility comes a lot of flexibility. And flexibility means that your product manager or like your team can just change its mind quite often. Mm -hmm. And that also means that sometimes people just like go ahead and start projects without like really researching or planning it properly. When you commit to like a six week timeline, you're essentially telling your team, we're gonna spend like a huge amount of time and it's either like success or failure. Um, we either hit the success criteria and measurements that we wanted or we're not. Shipping will happen anyway. Like this is like, it's a given. You will kind of plan and kind of crunch it to, to get to like the solution. And in that, and with that lens of six weeks, you know that if you commit to do something, you have to plan it properly because otherwise it's going to be like a massive uh, fail. And you will, you know, you will fail the product, you'll fail the company, you'll fail yourself. And there's going to be a lot of people working on something that is not valued which basically means that both the tech, the design, and the product will need to kind of cook a really, really good proposal to make sure that, you know, it's worth and is selected because part of the shape of methodology is that you're doing a bet. You pitch like X amount of projects every cycle. Some projects get selected, some won't, depending on either like ambition, how much the team really wants it to happen and stakeholder uh, in input. And you just like then kind of go and get it done. And if someone says that something is urgent, well, this could be, if it's like urgent, but will take a long time, well, it's worth planning because if it's that important, let's plan so we don't fail. And if it's super urgent and very short, then you have a kind of a fire extinguishing 18 commando SWAT type of team that will kind of go and, and do that, which usually you generally have in, in kind of a tech team anyway, you always have like one or two people who uh, turn off uh, fires or like, you know, solve specific bugs, etc. So I guess like, you know, in, in a nutshell, what I'm saying is it lets you be very intentional with what you do and help you kind of plan it properly and, and deliver usually great results. Uh, could you compare the experience of organization, the design uh process in small team and in the huge team. Is it some difference between this? 
yes, there's there's, there's some huge differences uh, because you need to be an amazing in a small team. It's quite easy. People know what the other person is doing. Even you know, in 15, 20 people, relatively people know what each other are doing. They know how good each other are. They know what to rely on each other for. Um, and in a huge, huge team, which requires a lot of coordination, your ability, and you know, especially Shopify, it's like fully remote uh, company. Your ability to communicate in writing, in like asynchronous videos is, is critical and your ability to build consensus and kind of build, built within and with a system, as I said, Polaris is quite critical for how quick you'll be able to bring your product into the market. You can go other ways. You can do, go and like do a variety of bespoke things, but that just means that your process is going to get slower because you're essentially going against kind of the stream the DNA, well, what I would call like the DNA of the company. Uh, can I ask uh, how many people you have in Shopify team, design team? Uh, more than 700 designers. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> cool, cool. So, and, and you lead in all of them or it's just in general like all Shop, them. all of them? I'm not leading all of them. Um, I'm leading a small team in the localization team. So mm -hmm. I have a team of uh, five currently. Um, and we're growing rapidly. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. My last question. So you got, you know, lots of experience and uh, something that I would like to emphasize uh, that uh, it, it's like you, you told you told that your life story started, you know, with, as the musician and then you become the product designer and it's like, you know, but it's still about the creativity, to be honest. Like for me, it's like nothing changed, you know, you, you just change a hammer, but you didn't change the, uh, the willing of doing things in your life as I see it, how you, how you still alive, how you didn't get crazy, what, what is the most, ex because you know, every people is driving by something and that's why they doing that, even in case it's tough, even in case it's hard and so on and so on. So what is, what is the main driver for you? Like what, what is the most exciting thing in the, in the design is for you? The most exciting thing for me is learning new things. I am addicted to it quite frankly, um, and that kind of